This is the Master Brewers Podcast, brought to you by the Master Brewers Association of the Americas, a volunteer organization dedicated to continually improving the products and processes of our membership since 1887. Master Brewers brings you interviews with the industry's best and brightest in brewing science, technology, and operations. Thank you to our newest sponsor, Keg Shoe Keg Tracking. Learn more about what they do at www.kegshoe.ca. This episode was made possible by the following sponsors. Dare to brew different with new and exciting hop varieties from Hopsteiner's industry-leading breeding program. Varieties like Sultana, Lotus, Bravo, Altus, and Contessa are now available in lupulin pellet form, packing more flavor and aroma per pellet. Discover more at hopsteiner.com. Additional support provided by... Every beer has a story, and that's why, for over 95 years, Gusmer Enterprises has offered a full line of solutions, including equipment, analytical instrumentation, and processing aids, all brought to you from leading suppliers and backed by strong technical support. For the solution to your story, go to gusmerbeer.com. And thanks also to... Brew Ninja a brewery software solution that streamlines your day-to-day operations, including inventory, accounting, sales, and compliance, so that you can focus on making great beer. Listeners of this podcast will receive a unique offer by going to getbrewninja.com and using the code BREWNINJA21. I kind of knew enough about pressure and cans because but I never had to push the limits. A lid, a fresh lid, quote-unquote, has a much higher tolerance for pressure um, failure than an older lid. Once I got to that range where they were starting to fail, they were failing, I could hear it, uh, within uh, two or three minutes of, of increasing the bath temperature. This week on the show... Have you ever wondered if you're pushing the limits of how much pressure your cans can handle? Master Brewer's past president joins us to discuss a chart he designed to keep you out of trouble. I'm Jim Core with uh, Bev Source and Catalyst Beverage Consulting in uh, Des Moines, Iowa. Jim, you've done it again. Another interesting, well-written, fun-to-read TQ article. What drove you to write this one? Well, the 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 project was already underway because of, you know, as expressed in the article, we were running into a lot of, um, I guess, misunderstanding uh, between brand owners and co-packers about, you know, the effect of carbonation and the limits of, of carbonation in a canned beverage through a tunnel pasteurizer. Traditional beer, fully fermented, you know, uh, filtered, uh, stable product. Um, good micro counts going into the package, you know, only requires a relatively mild pasteurization if, if you choose to pasteurize at approximately 140 degrees, which, you know, with normal beer carbonation generates uh, pressures well under the limits of the can. But with, um, you know, newer craft, it's not just craft beer styles, but all these uh, other carbonated alternative beverages that have um, 
have juices in them, spoilage, you know, that come with not only fermentable extracts, but also potential micro loads that require higher levels of um, pasteurization to create a stable product. Um, we're starting to, to, to push those temperatures up. Uh, also, the desire to have um, higher carbonation, fizzier, uh, seltzer-like uh, mouthfeel, um, all pushing the boundaries of what that pressure uh, limit is in the can or a bottle. And, and it's just a, a closed uh, container. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, it's just pushing the limits of what the industry has had to deal with in the past. And, uh, part of it is perception and, you know, teaching, teaching the, the two sides, the brand owner and the, and the packaging, uh, professionals, you know, just what's the reality of, of where we're working and what, what can we do to tweak it a little bit in our favor? So should everyone who doesn't do any pasteurization just stop listening now, or is there <laughs> something to learn here for everyone? Well, you know, I think the, the broader lessons uh, beyond the specifics of how much pressure can a can hold are to understand a, a, a complete system, you know, try to figure out what you don't know and, uh, and, and dig into it. I, I kind of knew enough about pressure in cans, but I never had to push the limits because we were never asked to pasteurize at the, those higher levels. So, you know, if you're faced with a challenge, there are resources out there and ways to, to, uh, to, to come up with a better, if not complete answer to help you do your job. That's what I think is the, the bigger lesson learned. Um, and I've been doing this for 38 years and I, you know, had to learn something new so it's uh never never stopped trying to learn how much pressure are cans typically rated to handle as far as i know all of the standard um beverage cans you know in particular the 12 ounce sleek the 12 ounce standard and the 16 ounce standard are rated for 90 psi um guaranteed and that's the lid and the the can body itself so the the lid, as I saw in the in the testing, the lid and the dome are both first points of, of failure and basically provide that uh, relief, pressure relief by expanding uh, versus a catastrophic, uh, you know, uh, blowout. Explosion. Yeah. Yeah. Jim, 90 PSI seems like a lot of pressure. Tell us how we get in trouble. Well, the... Uh, the, the gas laws dictate that in a, you know, pressure times volume over, what is it, pressure, uh, temperature, and volume um, are all interrelated. So in a closed, sealed vessel, um, volume is fixed. So as, as temperature rises, pressure rises. <clears throat> and um, so we all know from those of us who've done carbonation testing, you know, standard BBT, maybe 35 degrees you got two and a half volumes you're somewhere in the 13 14 psi range um but that same two and a half volumes of co2 when you heat it to 140 gets up in the 80 uh, psi range somewhere in there um then you go to 
say you want to push the carbonation limit to be more seltzer-like, you go up to three volumes, you're, you're easily going to exceed the, uh, the pressure limits of the can, or you're creating a juice-infused beverage that has a high micro-load, and you know, for, for microbial stability, you want to go to 155 or 160 for the internal temperature. Um, even at a lower um, carbonation level of 2.3, 2.4, you're still going to exceed the, uh, the 90 PSI um, uh, limit of the can. So does that mean you're definitely going to have can failures? No, it doesn't. Um, the can the the ninety is the the minimum guaranteed level, and I think the the testing showed that some cans survive much higher pressures. And I I learned from talking to the can manufacturers that it just amazes me that the a lid a fresh lid quote unquote has a much higher tolerance for pressure um, failure than an older lid. It didn't make any sense to me. It's metal. You know, why, why, why would it change? Yeah. But the way it was described was similar to, um, I, again, I'm going get, to get the science off here, but the, the annealing process is as you, um, the metal kind of kind of softened isn't the right word, but as it ages, it relaxes. And it, uh, it, when it relaxes, it, uh, it loses its ability to, to resist the pressure. So lesson learned, you know, rotate your lids, <laughs> you know, don't, yeah. don't, don't leave the, the one in the back, sit there and get a couple years old, especially if you're um, tunnel pasteurized. So you decided to make a chart to help folks understand the limits. Talk about that. Yeah, they, you know, I'm a visual person. I, I'd love to have just reference tools that I can just look at and, you know, do the, do, you know, cross-reference the two points and it tells me, you know, what I need to know. So, you know, whether it's in this case or we, we did a, a tool once for, for uh, you know, exposure limits for CO2 in a, in a cellar, you know, <laughs> in case the alarm goes off. But just being able to quickly reference a tool, you don't have to know the science behind it. You don't have to, to know much about it at all. But if you know what somebody's asking you to do, run, you know, a certain CO2 level at a certain uh, temperature, then you can look at a, a tool and, uh, and interpolate what your risk is. Um, what I found looking for a tool like that was nothing really existed, and you kind of had to dig to find anything um, published and readily available uh, at all. And and it wasn't very kind of user friendly that that quick reference guide. So you know the the you know the the motivation was just to to see if we could make a quick reference guide that we could show to um, brand owners and show to co-packers um, to just explain that you know we're this isn't an opinion this is science and and mother nature involved and there's nothing that we can really do about it so we need to make adjustments to the expectations to to make sure that that you know we deliver a a product that we can produce safely and consistently and of, of a high quality. 
So this is basically the chart I look at when testing bright tank carbonation with the Zalman Nagel CO2 tester, but at way higher temperatures and formatted with some colors to let me know if I'm in a safe range or likely to yeah. get in trouble. Yeah, pretty much. It, you know, it's uh, that's a great way to put it, actually. It's, um, it's exactly that, but it's also, you know, the colors are uh, and the zones are formatted specifically to that 90 PSI limit. Now, if if you have a, a different can or a different bottle with different limits, you, you, you know, it wouldn't be hard to, to um, you know, to reproduce a, a chart or just go online and put in those um, or, you know, find the tool of your choice and put in those, uh, those parameters that somebody's asking you to produce to and compare that against the, the pressure limits of the container. Okay, you can't just make a reference chart without validating the numbers. Let's put on some safety goggles so you can walk us through your experiment. <laughs> safety goggles is a great idea because I had one blow up when I opened the lid once. Um, and it was quite surprising. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, I, I love my sous vide device. It makes great pulled pork and everything else, but it just sits here in the basement most of the time not being used. So I, I it dawned on me that it's basically just a big water bath and having seen a lot of batch pasteurizers, which are, um, you know, similar to a tunnel, but they're stationary. Um, it just dawned on me that, Hey, you know, let's, this should work just fine. So, um, you know, did in the first, the first test I did, I, I, I punctured a can and put a probe a temperature probe in into it. And, um, and ran it and monitored both the water temperature and that internal uh, can temperature and found that, that, you know, as expected, the cans heat up very quickly. And within two minutes of, of achieving the water bath temperature, the can, the internal can temperature was, um, you know, up to that same temperature. So 10 minutes was picked as, you know, the typical, um, hold time at a maximum temperature during a tunnel pasteurization run it's not absolute that it's always 10 but typically it's it's spec'd out at 10 minutes so at each temperature um increase i held it for 10 minutes and then checked for any deformities uh, you know once i got to that range where they were starting to fail they were failing i could hear it uh within a two or three minutes of, of increasing the bath temperature. So um, that it's just kind of a second um, validation that the, that the can temperature was coming up quickly to the bath temperature. Um, you know, it, 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 it's very, very hot water to be handling. So it was a little tricky to, to check both dome and, um, and lid failures each at each temperature, but got pretty good at flipping them over. Um, you need like a mirror on the bottom of it or something. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but you know, it, it got to be you know pretty predictable, pretty routine. Um, the, the what I still don't quite understand, and it'd be interesting if there's a, a can person out there that that might know better why. You know, some cans seem to um, fail more on the lid and some more on the dome. Um, you know, I don't know what causes it. Both of them have a 90 PSI rating, or uh, and 
seem to be the case that that that's a good number because the uh, very few of them failed below 90 and if they did they were right on the edge and uh, it was you know fairly even between those that failed on the lid and those that failed on the dome but either one of it is a failure so you know, it doesn't really matter which one fails I was surprised though because I would expect just looking at it that the, the tab would blow before the other things blew but I only had I think one one tap go and maybe one rivet leak, uh, which surprised me as well. Coming up. It's too risky for me. If you were to do it, I would make sure that you have excellent fill control, that you're doing CO2s with a calibrated digital instrument, so you're dead on. I'm John Bryce, and you're listening to the Master Brewers Podcast from the Master Brewers Association of the Americas. There's really only one thing that keeps this podcast going, and that's when listeners like you take the time to thank our sponsors. The next time you talk to a rep from one of these companies, be sure to thank them for their generous support. Get to know Proximity Malt. We malt superior, European-style, low-protein varieties grown close to home in Delaware and Colorado. Domestically grown, precisely malted to style. With our team of seasoned experts and two brand new malt houses, Try what's really new in malt. Check us out at www.proximitymalt.com. Brew Monitor from Precision Fermentation works with your existing fermentation tanks to track dissolved oxygen, pH, gravity, pressure, temperature, and conductivity in real time from any smartphone, tablet, or PC. Get started for 30 days risk-free. Visit precisionfermentation.com MBAA. This episode is sponsored by BSG Craft Brewing. Explore a whole universe of hop sensory with unique varieties like Kashmir, Comet, Triumph, Eldorado, and many more. Sourced directly from growers and processed at BSG's FSSC certified facility in Yakima to bring you only the very best hops from farmer to fermenter. For contracting, spot sales, and more info, reach out to us at letstalkhops at bsgcraft.com. Are you looking to improve yield, quality, and sustainability in your cellar? Alpha Laval has over 60 years of brewing experience, offering centrifuges, dealcoholization systems, yeast plants, and complete cold block cellar projects. Designed for the most gentle and efficient treatment of your beer, cider, hard seltzer, or other beverages. Let the leaders in brewing innovation help you meet your greatest production and sustainability goals. Visit alphalaval.us slash MBAA to learn more. Thank you to Brewing with Enzymes by Novazymes. For commercial brewers, enzymes can ease filtration, eliminate diacetyl rest, meet attenuation targets, and optimize your raw materials to save on labor. If you're curious to learn more, head over to brewingwithenzymes.com and get 50% off with your first order using discount code MBAA. And here's what's coming up on the Master Brewers calendar. District Rocky Mountain meets March 9th at River North Brewing Company in Denver. 
The Illinois Craft Brewers Guild and District of Northern Illinois Joint Conference is March 14th and 15th in Bloomington. Master Brewers is hiring. Check the show notes for a link to the job description for course director for the Brewery Maintenance Systems course. Applications will be accepted until March 20th. District Philly meets at the Iron Hill Tap House in Exton March 25th. The 2022 Brewing Summit, that's the combined meeting with Master Brewers and ASBC, is August 14th through the 16th in Rhode Island. Check out the full calendar of events at mbaa.com for more details or to find a district meeting near you. Now back to the show. You wrote that there were some surprising results. Take us through each of the can types you tested and how the results shook out. Yeah, the um, the first one was the um, the stand twelve ounce standard can. Um, the surprising thing for me was the the, the temperature range that I saw the failures. Um, these are these are national brands that that I know from from working with with them and just knowing their their attention to quality that they they have tight controls over fills and co2 um so i was very surprised to see um you know an eight eight degree range of failures and you know i don't know if that was an indication of of varying fill height which would would adjust the the pressure in the headspace whether it was a difference in can um, resistance to failure or something else, uh, CO2 uh, volume. But they all came out of the same 12-pack, so they should have all come out of the same lot of, of product, etc. So I would, that was just a, a real surprise to me. Then going to the um, the twelve ounce sleek, saw the saw the same thing. Um, and what was the range of those failures? Um, you said it was an eight degree range, yeah. but I mean, yeah. So, well, pressure wise, let's see on the standard can, the lowest um, failed at at eighty eight point nine calculated psi up to ninety four point six. Okay, um, and that was a. a temperature range of 146 to 153 with an average co2 of 2.8 so that's pretty high um, uh, carbonation level and so i'm not not terribly surprised to see some failures in the before you even got to 150 degrees Mm -hmm. Uh, the second can this was a craft ale the pressure range was 91.6 up to 96.5 and 153 degrees to 159 degrees. So all well over the uh, design limit of the can. So that was at a 2.7 CO2. And then moving to 12-ounce sleek. In the first example, it was, and these were... Uh, these are seltzers. This was like a, These are yeah, national seltzer yeah, brand. Yeah. yeah, two different ones. Um, again, eight degrees, roughly ninety-one point eight psi to ninety-seven point seven. The two point nine CO two. So we had one hundred forty-six to one hundred fifty-three degree range. 
And the second one was 88.1. We had two failures under 90, 88.1 and 89.7, up to 93 PSI and a temperature range of 145 to 151, which was a, a 2.8 CO2. Before we jump on to the next one, th this is this probably gives me the most confidence in in the the yellow orange band in the middle. That um, you know, if somebody asked me to to agree to a specification that fell in the yellow band, which is you know some risk of of failure, I'm pretty comf comfortable agreeing to that because yeah there might be the occasional can but not going to be a lot yeah 99.9 percent .9 of the cans coming out are going to be just fine um but when you somebody pushes you to that that edge of of uh, where it, it's almost 90 so you know the 88 87 88 89 psi i wouldn't do it um yeah unless you got a lot of money to burn um, it's just, it's too risky for me. Um, if you were to do it, I would make, you know, really sure that you have excellent fill control, that you're doing CO2s with a calibrated digital instrument. So you're dead on and that you've got fresh lids, you know? <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, those are the sort of things where you have to know the whole picture in order to make a good decision, uh, for your, for your your client or your your outcome um then moving on this was the interesting one the the last two products came from um a national producer who has a reputation for having extremely tight control of their co2 and it proved out and you know and this is obviously a tiny tiny sample but um the especially on the on the the 12 ounce proprietary can they all blew up at the same time at the same temperature i mean 150 degrees um the chart shows you know two different temp or, um, co2 levels but that's because the average was dead in the middle to 275 and uh, and i was just it, it was just so surprising to me to open up the cooler and see that they had all failed and every failure was a, a dome failure. Um, that was just very unique in that regard. And then they're even consistent with their failures. Yeah, exactly. I mean, what, what more could you ask for? I mean, that, that, that allows you to make it when you have that tight of control, that allows you to, to be a little more aggressive in getting leading up to that, that edge, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, if, if you can control all the inputs that tightly, then I would have more confidence in, in getting closer to the line. Okay, you mentioned this earlier a little bit, but talk about the variability in, um, in CO2 measurement and how that <laughs> factors in here. Sure. The, you know, the, um, you know, there's a lot of, lot of technology out there for, um, for testing co2 the the oldest one is the manual shake method but you know it's prone to to being you know only as only as accurate as the pressure gauge and the thermometer and the skill of the operator and you know not not every brewery has you know 
the, the best controls in place to maintain those those units. Um, you know, are they even sensitive to the fact that the, the pressure gauges can can go out of calibration? The thermometers can be off just a little bit, and then if well, all it takes is one person to leave it packed with beer for an hour and let it warm up, and then your your pressure gauge gets pegged and it's not good anymore, right? Exactly, and and you don't know that, right? And so. Or that it gets dropped, or you know, it, it, you dent the um, the body of it. It, it. There's so many different variables that you know. If somebody tells me that that's how they they um, they came to their CO2 measurement, then I I have to take that with a broader range of of uh, accuracy than something that's that's digital and repeatable. But even the digital and repeatable ones. You have to make you have to understand whether or not they again they know how to, how to use it that they calibrate it that it's clean and um, and then even within that and then I'm going to step on the edge of my my uh, my understanding of how those digital units come to their reading but I believe that there are some that are testing and reading specifically only the CO2 level and others that interpret all pressure temperature combinations as if it was all of the gases were CO2. So there's a minor difference when, you know, whatever dissolved oxygen and nitrogen there might be and other gases in the liquid all get combined with the CO2 to produce a number than there is when you're taking the data and producing a CO2 only number. So the CO2 only number would be slightly lower than one that that's assuming that all all of the gases are CO2. So you know And then even if you've got a great instrument it depends on you know you're not going to have the same operator each time, right? Yeah. Luckily from my experience with those they're pretty user independent as long as that person's been trained and but I, you know, if, again, when you're talking about a really critical measurement, I do it twice. Make sure you get the same number twice in a row. Um, I've seen differences between instruments as well. So you've got, you know, one portable unit being used in the cellar and the BBT, another unit being used for packages, and they, you get numbers that don't make sense. Like, why is it higher in the package? Well, are the are the units are the instruments calibrated do they, do they agree with one another on the mm-hmm. on the same one you have to kind of step back and ask those questions um, before you can interpret the results in a way that would allow you to to decide you know how close to that line you want to get and what about the nuances of tunnel pasteurizers there's more than one temperature to consider here <laughs> yeah, right there sure is um, for beer um, you know, my experience, excuse me, my experience has been, you know, less, you can, if you have good tight micro control to begin with, meaning that your micro load going into the tunnel is minimal, you can be very gentle with with the, uh, the pasteurization and, and just kind of creep up to your target and then quickly get it cooled down again. But when you're trying to be a Aggressive and get up to into these 155 to 160 degree range. 
you, your spray temperature has to be hotter than that target temperature in order to achieve the internal can temperature within the time that you have in the zone. And so uh, typically, if you're trying to get to 155, um, let me back up a minute. Most, and then this is being broad, but most of, of the pasteurizers being used these days are typically like six zones. Zone one would be a, a preheat. Zone two would, you know, be a little bit hotter. Zone three would be the superheat. So this that zone would be spraying water that's typically two or three degrees higher than your holding temperature. So if you want to get to 155, that zone three spray temperature might be um, 157, 158. And then by the time it exits zone three and into zone four, that's your hold zone. That that spray temperature would typically be very close to your target. Um, so, so let's assume it's 155 or 156 for a 155 internal target. But if the line stops, <clears throat> all of those cans that are in zone three are being sprayed, you know, exposed to 157 or 158 degree water. And what we've learned will very quickly come up to that temperature um, and potentially, if you're too close to the line, exceed the 90 PSI uh, limit and therefore have a chance to, to fail. So you have to, if, you're, if you are operating a tunnel pasteurizer, and most, again, brewers are much more sensitive to this than I found um, other co-packers are. Who are running non-beer products? Um, you have to, you know, have the SOPs in place or the controls in place that when the line stops, that the sprays stop, and then, you know, in a in a really sophisticated tunnel, it, sometimes they even have a cooling step where they'll spray cool water on that to stop uh, any pasteurization, you know, ex excessive pasteurization in those hotter zones. That's that's an uncommon in in the craft in the in the big beer space. That's common technology in the co-packing space and the smaller craft beer tunnel space. Um, that's a that's a luxury that I haven't seen. All right, we haven't really talked about the variable of fill height. You mentioned it earlier, yeah. but tell us more about that and what you observed during this um, during yeah, your test. There's, there was as we were. Um, debating, uh, you know, the approach to solving this issue for the brand owners who wanted the, uh, the higher CO2 limits um, or higher CO2 levels, we had heard that some people were actually achieving these higher CO2 levels in standard cans. And, uh, you know, it's kind of, we were all scratching our heads as to, to how that could be. And then somebody suggested or heard that that they were underfilling and i don't mean that in a in a that they were doing something wrong they, they were you know need to label it as 11.7 ounces or 11.5 ounces but using a 12 ounce can um which you know would allow for a greater headspace so earlier when i said the volume is fixed um, if, if you have a 12 ounce can and you fill it to 12 ounces, there's a fixed amount of headspace. But if you 
only fill it to 11.5, now you've got obviously a, a larger headspace. And that is um, space for the, the pressure to, for the gases to expand into before, uh, before the can needs to fail in order to, to relieve that pressure. I I don't know that I have the physics perfectly <laughs> described there, but uh, um, it does seem to be a viable approach because um, I've I've heard it multiple times since that that yes that is what some people are doing, but also in the the work that I did on for this paper um, in the site I did. I basically did two rounds of testing. This the second set of testing that I did before I put the cans in. I weighed them all, and the beauty of a of a can is that it's a can and lid are extremely reliable as far as their tear weight goes. Um, so you can just weigh the filled package for to get your fill height. Um, and so I wrote on the cans uh, what how many grams each can was. And, and again, generally speaking, there was a trend that those that had lower uh, weights, meaning, you know, lower fill heights, lower fill height would fail at higher temperatures. So, yeah. again, a great uh, place to maybe do another paper on that, but uh, um, maybe it's just something you could, you could go off and try yourself. <laughs> That was Jim Coor here on the Master Brewers Podcast. Check the show notes for a link to Jim's article, which includes a printable version of his chart. And I had a lot of a lot of people to bounce these ideas off of. Um, you know, Matt, Anna, and Ian up at BevSource, and and some of the the brewers and co-packers I know with with tunnels. They, I kind of ran this by them to to make sure that their their experience lined up with what what this data was showing and and then the you know the can folks from ball and crown and others they um they were helpful in in kind of running this idea by them to make sure that it made sense so i you know i want to thank all those folks for contributing are you enjoying the master brewers podcast let me tell you about a simple way you can help us keep making more. Take a minute to thank our sponsors. There's no way we could produce this show without generous support from sponsors like Hopsteiner, Brew Ninja, Proximity Malt, BSG, Gussamer, and Precision Fermentation. So please, let them know you heard their message on the Master Brewers podcast and that you appreciate their support. Oh.